0: Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, James W. Cardin, a columnist and former advisor to the U.S.-Russia Bilateral Presidential Commission at the U.S. Department of State, returns to discuss his recent writing on the potential war that could be brewing in the South Caucasus. As fears that Turkey-backed Azerbaijan has its eyes set on Southern Armenia. We'll also be discussing Israel's arming of Azerbaijan and the power and corrupting influence of lobbies in the DC foreign policy world. All that and much more on this edition of Parallax Views. So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with James W. Carden. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I always enjoy speaking with. It's been a little while since we last had him on. James W. Carden is a columnist at uh, Antiwar.com and former advisor to the U.S.-Russia Bilateral Presidential Commission at the U.S. Department of State. Uh, He's also had uh, pieces appear, essays in The Nation, The American Conservative, Responsible, Statecraft, The Spectator, Unheard, The National Interest, Courts, The Los Angeles Times, and American Affairs. How are you doing, James? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I mean, all things considered, it's uh, heartbreaking seeing what's happening in the world, but uh, I wanted to have you on to discuss – Uh, Some articles she recently wrote for Antiwar.com, specifically this article, Israel's Other War, Ethnic Cleansing in the South Caucasus. This is about Nagorno-Karabakh. And, you know, I think a lot of people are overlooking that now just because of all the developments that have occurred with Israel-Palestine, with the bombing of Gaza, and the October 7th tragedy. But I think there's a connection in a way because – uh. The Israeli government has a tie to the issues with Nagorno-Karabakh. Maybe give my listeners an overview of the plight of the Armenians and how Israel ties into it. Sure. So
1: I spent last week in Armenia um, and uh, you know, talking to people about what has been going on there. And while it's sort of not made the headlines here, Um, In September and October, um, Azerbaijan committed an act of ethnic cleansing against an ancient Christian community in Nagorno-Karabakh. There are Armenians, uh, ethnic Armenians, um, who were basically uh, blockaded um, by the um, Azerbaijani government um, beginning in December of uh, 22. So they endured a nine-month Uh, blockade, Uh, Azerbaijan prevented food, medicine, fuel from uh, getting into the enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh. And then in September, um, they launched a war against the defense army of Nagorno-Karabakh. And it lasted all of 23 hours. Uh, And then um, the Azerbaijan government quite disingenuously said to the population there, well, um, you can uh, live here. We'll give you um, uh, Azerbaijani passports and you can stay. And um, after, you know, being um, after having endured a nine month uh, blockade where the Azerbaijani government basically tried to starve them out, uh, most people, almost the entirety of the population there, over 100,000 people. Opted not to do that. Uh, And so they became refugees and fled their ancient homeland into Armenia uh, proper. Uh, Where Israel comes into it is that Israel has been the principal arms supplier to Azerbaijan uh, beginning about 15 years ago. Um, Azerbaijan has enormous um, coal, uh, coal, uh, oil, and gas. deposits in the Caspian uh, Sea, it's made that country very rich. Uh, And so um, they've spent billions on advanced weapons systems purchased uh, from Turkey, Russia, uh, and Israel. So it seems to me that Israel has its um, fingerprints on not just one um, instance of ethnic cleansing, uh, that which is going on now, in Gaza, uh, but on another. And um indeed, even after October 7th, uh when the Israelis, you know, suffered that a uh, horrendous attack um by, by Hamas, even after that, uh, when they were telling the world that their very existence hung in the balance, they were still selling and delivering weapons to um, Azerbaijan. So the ties there are, are are very deep, but they are not much mentioned here in the United States. Uh, though I would say, uh, in in all fairness, that um, some of the better um, liberal um, media outlets in Israel um, have been covering that story and have been quite critical of the Do government. Do you mean like Heretz and those publications? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's exactly. exactly. Um, they released an editorial... Um, I think it was last week, a couple of weeks ago, um, saying that the Israeli government has quote unquote its fingerprints all over the uh ethnic cleansing operation in nagorno karabakh Uh in Israel, you know, they have a much more robust um and open debate about Israel and Israel's role in the world uh than, than we have here uh in, in Washington, certainly.
0: Not not to shift too much away from Israel here, but there's also this issue of what I would call uh, the Azeri lobby. Uh, Can you talk about that? What are the groups that compose the lobbying efforts of Azerbaijan in Washington?
1: Well, sure. Uh, There are many and uh, they have uh, very deep pockets. Um, It doesn't really compare to the Israel lobby, uh, but it operates pretty much in the same way. Um this all goes back to, as I mentioned before, Azerbaijan's oil and gas uh, money. So they have a, um, I guess I would describe it as a sovereign wealth fund, which in itself is not an objectionable idea. And we would probably we'd do well to have one ourselves, but um, they, um, it's called SOCAR, it's the state oil company of the Azerbaijan Republic. Um, And SOCAR funnels um, tens of millions of dollars to Washington through various uh, lobbying groups, think tanks, universities, academics. Um, So one of the more prominent ones, one of the more prominent beneficiaries of their largesse is the Podesta group. Uh, The Podesta group, your listeners and viewers may Recognize that name? It's uh, John the,
0: Podesta of Clinton fame.
1: Mr. John Podesta, who is now a senior advisor, he's back. Um, he's a senior advisor to President Biden on energy, um, clean energy, and you know, Podesta was Bill Clinton's chief of staff. He is a longtime, you know, uh, member of Clinton world. He founded or co-founded the. Despicable Center for American Progress, um, which gave us Neera Tandon and the rest of them. And Tandon, of course, is also in the administration now as the uh, chief um, domestic policy advisor to the president. So you have the Podesta Group, you have BGR, which is a, um, another powerhouse lobbying firm in Washington. And then, of course, the SOCAR Azerbaijani, um, Money has its hooks into a number of um, academics, and uh, um, one of whom was a professor of mine at Johns Hopkins. But I don't want to go into that too much. But um, I, I do have a funny story about that. So, um, so this this fellow had been on the receiving end of a lot of dough from Azerbaijan and this was 13 years ago and i didn't really i didn't know that um i was just kind of you know i was in school i was learning and i wrote and he taught a course on the Caucasus. and i wrote a critical paper about sokar and he went bananas um not only did he give me a terrible grade he berated me a- after he gave the paper back to me and i couldn't under- i really couldn't understand you know what the problem was. Um, it's not that I hadn't gotten bad grades before. God knows, you know, I, I have. But um, it was really a mystery to me. And then a classmate, I told a classmate of mine about it, who had been in the military and had been very experienced in that area, and he clued me in that this fellow, you know, uh, was uh, pretty much part of the um, Azerbaijan lobby in Washington. Um, so you know there's that uh so yeah they have their hooks in a lot of uh people um there were really good articles in um the armenian weekly and um i have to admit even though i hate to do it um even the new republic has um published some really good pieces about about that so if your viewers and listeners are are interested in that um you know th- there's plenty Plenty out there. It's it's a it's not a well kept secret in Washington.
0: I was going to bring this up because I feel like any time the Armenians get defended by either yourself or someone like myself or uh, someone like the journalist Lindsay Snell, uh, we all get descended upon by people that will accuse us of being paid off by the so-called Armenian lobby. Uh, how do you want to how do you want to respond to people that say that? Because I, I feel like it's a form of gaslighting. I mean I do know that there are you know armenians and the, the armenian americans in the legal world in hollywood uh, people like kim kardashian even that are trying to draw light on the plight of armenians uh, and you know the history of the armenian genocide but you know the idea that they're more powerful than the azeri lobbying efforts is mind-boggling to me i i just i think it's gaslighting
1: i i can't wait for that i've been you know accused for years of you know being you know russia this russia that and I've never taken a dime from any foreign um, interest at all. Um, I was just in Armenia. I paid for that airfare, hotel, everything, you know, out of my own, um, out of my own pocket. The, the um, 501c3 that I work for, um, which is um, Katrina Vanden Heuvel and Stephen F. Cohen's um, group, the American Committee for U.S. Russia Accord uh, takes zero, uh, money from corporates, foreign, nothing. Um, it's always the people who are making the accusations that are getting their pockets lined by foreign interests. So this is interesting. Um, I was speaking to an, um, Armenian academic when I was over there, um, last week and, um, he said that there was a conference not so long ago, and there were people from the Atlantic Council and um, CEPA, C-E-P-A um, the Senate for, I think it's European Policy Analysis. Anyway, it's a real neocon outfit. And um, apparently, the representative there from CEPA spent a lot of time, you know, accusing. Um, people who I know from the Quincy Institute and other other places of, you know, being, you know, Russian agents or whatever. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, SIPA and the Atlantic Council are up to their necks in foreign money. Um, so that's hilarious. Um, if the Armenian lobby uh, wants to pay me off, they can do it uh, in, in, in cases of brandy and wine. And uh, I will, I will take that. Um, and if I have to register uh, with uh, through Farah in order to receive it, I will do so uh, because it's that good. Um, you know. So, um, what was your question? I'm sorry. I... No, I,
0: I was just asking you what you think of the. I mean, I think you've answered it there with these accusations that any talk of uh, you know a persecution of the Armenians is just uh, Armenian lobby talking points is ridiculous.
1: Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, But that's, that's add to the playbook. That's the old, you know, that's the neocon playbook. Accuse the other person of the thing that you're doing exactly, right? So. I also wanted to ask you, I know you don't mention it in the
0: article, but uh, every time that the subject of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh comes up or just anything involving Azerbaijan, what's, do you have any thoughts on the relation to the, the relationship between Turkey and all of these topics.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, Turkey's kind of the main mover um, in, in the region. Um, Russia is obviously distracted with its own uh, issues. They were um, the
0: ones keeping the peace, really, between the Republic of Artsakh and. Yeah.
1: After 2020. So there was a, another short war initiated by Azerbaijan in 2020, and the Russians came in, and then the Russians. Um, agreed to put peacekeepers uh, in there. And, um, you know, Russia, largely thanks, um, largely due to, you know, its own um, actions um, in Ukraine, um, you you know, became distracted. Um, And so, you know, there was a window of opportunity uh, for Azerbaijan to act. But Azerbaijan doesn't do anything without uh, the, um, as, as they say, you know, the express written consent of, uh, Turkey, uh, you know, Turkey is the, 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 real, you know, player in the region. It is, you know, and it's the largest army outside of the United States in NATO. Um, so it's a real power there and it calls the shots and it has zero sympathy, um, with Armenia. Uh, and indeed, um, as we speak, um, you know, I'm sure that the Turks and Azerbaijan are uh, plotting um, to open a corridor that goes through Armenian, sovereign Armenian territory to con- to connect the two. Um, so that is what I kind of refer to in the pieces as kind of the the the, the coming war uh, in the Caucasus. It's going to involve um, Azerbaijan with the. Cons- Sent an encouragement of the Turks to um, to, to simply take uh, part of southern Armenia uh, in order to connect it to. Uh, this is going to have serious regional consequences since the Iranians have spoken up very forcefully against against that, and the and the Russians aren't keen on it either uh, because it screws up. Um, the, their plans for a, you know, a greater Eurasian economic um, union. So uh, what we're looking at is probably if this does indeed happen, another regional war. I was going to say, I, I
0: believe uh, Anthony Blinken recently said, you know, Azerbaijan could soon invade Armenia. So there, there are people in the U.S. talking about this.
1: Right. So then- it, uh, mm-hmm. In the way that they talk about it, the Lincoln was actually, I think, being honest for once. Um, there was a hearing yesterday morning at 9 30 on the Hill. The House Subcommittee on European um, and Eurasian Affairs hosted the new Assistant uh, Secretary for Europe and Eurasia, which was the position that Victoria Newland held a number of years ago when the Ukraine thing went pear shaped. Um, this fellow's name is james o'brien he's a protege of madeline albright and you know um he pinned the problems that that are happening with nagorno-karabakh with Armenia on russian meddling you know it's always the same old it's always the same old song right um if there i think an argument could be made if there was if there was more russian meddling in the area that probably would have prevented the genocide uh, that took place. Um, But, you know, these guys are nothing if not team players. So the idea that a high level American official would actually criticize, you know, Turkey, criticize the people who are actually doing it instead of, you know, somehow blaming, you know, Russia's involvement. It's quite incredible. Um, And it's disheartening. Um, because O'Brien is testifying to, you know, a bunch of congressmen who don't know anything about the region. So, you know, you have basically this feedback loop of idiocy, um, and it, you know, it, it goes a long way towards explaining why American foreign policy is so screwed up in the first place.
0: If we could, uh I, I want to get back to Israel, but I did want to ask you about this. Um with regards to US Armenia relations, uh, the word I've heard through different quarters and uh you know spaces is that there are a lot of people um uh, in Armenia uh that are saying, you know, this is why we shouldn't trust the Americans. Uh with I mean with, when it comes to Nagorno-Karabakh. Because there was this idea, I guess, of Relations uh, between the U.S. and and Armenia changing a lot over the past few years, and I know a lot of voices uh, from the Armenian world are saying that was a mistake. Look, they didn't do anything for us. Uh, did you notice that while you were in Armenia?
1: Yeah, um, you know what happened was um, in tw- they had their own color revolution in twenty eighteen. Well, that if we look at the history, of color revolutions beginning you know, in the early 2000s, that always kind of spells trouble for that those countries. Um, and so they elected a pro-American Soros-connected um, member of parliament, former journalist, Nicole Pashinin, Pashinyan. And, um, you know, he went about trying to upend Armenia's traditional foreign policy. In other words, distance it from the Russians, bring the Americans in. That hasn't really worked out so well. The pro- and the problem is, is that, you know, now that they're really getting squeezed by Turkey and Azerbaijan, you know, their potential protectors in the region, their great power protectors are Iran and Russia. Um, but by pushing Russia away and bringing the United States in, right? They just held joint military exercises with the United States. I think it was last month. Those powers are going to say, well, why am I going to help you? You're bringing the Americans to our doorstep, right? Um, so basically, you the, these people never really seem to learn. Right. So you look at what happened with Georgia. Right. In the late 2000s, they had Mikhail Shakasvili, who was basically a pro-American puppet. Uh, And then you have the Maidan revolution in uh, 2014, where literally the new government was handpicked by members of the State Department. None of these things have worked out well. For those countries, but this fellow, who's the prime minister in Armenia now, seems intent on making uh, the, the the same mistakes that the Ukrainians and the and the Georgians made, and 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 it's a terrible thing to 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 watch because the victims are innocent people in Armenia who have, have really nothing to do with this, um, so they're kind of caught. Um, in, in in this sort of tragic um uh situation through no fault of their own but we have a governing class here in Washington that just we just can't help ourselves why in the world is it does it matter to 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 American citizens who's calling the shots in the South Caucasus you know it, it but we have this kind of addiction that you know we should, you know we should be there and we should be doing it. Um, I wish really dearly that we would learn from our mistakes and 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 the and the hubris uh, that that we've displayed over the past 20, 22 years. But uh, it's not certainly not going to happen under Joe Biden. Get careful! Someone's going to accuse you of being an isolationist. Oh, I don't care. I'm fine with that. I... <laughs> I absolutely am. I'm absolutely a neo isolationist. I, I really I really don't like
0: that term just because uh you know I, I think that the term isolationism is
1: largely used as a slur. Uh, and but that's not the worst one. <laughs> I mean um no, you neo know, I mean, hey, look, towards the end of their lives, George F. Cannon and Walter Lippman both embrace the term. They said, "Go right ahead. Call me a neo isolationist." Um, you know, due to their opposition to um, the American misadventure uh, in Vietnam, um, i I have no problem. I have no problem with it. I'm sure it's meant as a slur. Um, I've been called worse.
0: So, getting back to Israel for a second here, uh, you write the AP reports that it is estimate estimated that Israel has supplied Azerbaijan with nearly 70% of its arsenal between 2016 and 2020. And just this week, it was reported that Azerbaijan inked a $1.2 billion deal with Israel Aerospace Industries to purchase the Barak MX air defense system, described as a modular air defense system designed to address missile and aircraft threats. And then you follow that with the question then arises, why is Israel, which claims to be under a near constant threat of missile attacks from the south in Gaza, and potentially from the north by Hezbollah doing this? Now, it's interesting because you then get into, maybe this isn't simply
1: about money, but also geopolitics. Could you speak to that? Right. So one of the better contexts that I spoke to an academic in Armenia laid it out very clearly to me. Um it was his view and it's a view I think I share is that it isn't solely about money for the Israelis. They don't really need it. Uh you know, they're an extremely advanced country whose defense budget is actually covered by us. A fifth of it is covered by us every year. Um it is about geopolitics and they they like us um share a deep and abiding paranoia with regard to iran so azerbaijan even though it's a muslim country um has decided to allow uh the israelis to use their territory to launch Operations, intelligence operations, whatever covert operations, um, from their territory against Iran, um, and so that trumps all considerations in Tel Aviv. So, in in their way of thinking, who really cares about one hundred and twenty thousand Christian Armenians whose lives are going to be upended and potentially ruined um, if we can use. Azerbaijani territory uh, to spy on and launched covert operations against against Iran. So really, it has a lot to do uh, with that. And of course, they were eager to support the Nagorno karabakh operation uh, because um, after part of it was cleared out, Azerbaijan built a couple of airports. Um, only about 30 to 40 kilometers away from the Iranian border, which, according to my source, the Israelis um, can use at will. So that's kind of the geopolitical um, part of
0: it. Just a few more things here, if you have a little bit of extra time. I wanted to talk about uh, U.S. conservatives. Uh, Now, I think you know from past times we've spoken, I come from a more... Uh, I guess, lefty perspective. We probably have uh, disagreements on some things in in terms of uh, political beliefs, but I sort of know the lay of the land uh, when it comes to a lot of conservative and and libertarian thought. And what's interesting to me is I feel like U.S. conservatives, you would think, uh, would be interested in the plight of Christian Armenians. I mean, this is one of, if not the oldest uh, Christian civilization in the world. Um, And It just seems like they don't care and then there are ones that claim to but the second you bring up the involvement of israel with the plight of the armenians they sort of freeze up and they don't want to talk about that um i'm specifically thinking about the national conservative faction uh do you want to speak to the way that conservatives and the national conservative faction uh deals with
1: the armenia issue um i yeah i mean i can I guess I would start by saying that you know there are ele- small elements, but important elements within the conservative, um, on the conservative side of the ledger that are indeed um, very good on on the issue of Armenia Armenia's plight.
0: I, I was going to say, I mean, credit where credit is due. People like Amari have talked about it. You know, others.
1: He has written numerous columns for the American Conservative. American conservatives just ran a column that I wrote, um, anti-war. Obviously, um, it's more of a Israel issue. So you have elements of so the net cons claim to be part of the you know realistic restraint community, um, and until Israel gets brought up. Or until China gets brought up, so you know one of their favorite spokespeople, or I don't know what you would call them, um, policy types, gurus, or whatever, is uh, is Bridge Colby. Oh, Bridge Colby. Um, You know, Colby claims to be you know real middle of the road and sensible, but he's a China hawk through and through. Um, And of course, after October seventh. The masks sort of slipped with regard to the Natcons. So, um, you know, really, uh, for a lot of them, I'm not going to say their primary loyalty is to Israel, but it's one of their loyalties. It's one of those things that is very near and dear to a lot of their hearts. Um, I'm not so sure that the Zionist project fits in well with the themes of realism and restraint. I'm not really sure that it's something that American foreign policy ought to concern itself with. What I am certain of is that the conflation and this is something that worries me deeply for personal reasons. The conflation of Zionism with Judaism. Judaism is a religion that is concerned very deeply with justice. The conf- and, and no one has been more vocal and responsible for conflating those two things than Benjamin, among his many crimes. Than, than Benjamin Netanyahu. But I, I just- was gonna can I add to this real
0: quick, just a brief side note. You know, this has actually been a debate within the Jewish community, even amongst pro-Zionists. I was just talking to someone yesterday that was part of um the Nexus Task Force, which tried to create a definition or guidelines for identifying anti-Semitism that were, I would say, more narrow uh in scope. Than the really broad in scope IHRA definition, which is, you know, criticism of Israel and Zionism is anti-Semitism. The Nexus Task Force, which you know, people like um Dove Waxman of UCLA were involved, and these people are not anti-Zionists, were saying, no, that goes way too far. And the definition of, you know, there can be people that describe as anti-Zionists that are anti-Semitic, but then there's also people that you know, are anti, that are anti-Zionist that aren't anti-Semitic. So this is even a debate within the Jewish intellectual community.
1: Well, yeah, and you're seeing that now really on full boil um over the over the past over the past month. I don't see how you can look at people like Max Blumenthal and Aaron Mate and Norman Finkelstein Um and many others uh jewish voices for peace they're clearly anti zionist they are not anti semitic i mean you know and this 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 i this conflation of the two is very dangerous for american jews um and and jewish people worldwide um because basically you know you're connecting the identity of a religion to the policies of what is now very clearly an ethno-nationalist state, that spells trouble. Um, and you know, it's it's very unfortunate, and it's something that the Natcons themselves are now doing. Um, and I I never really believe them. When they were proclaiming that they were anti-interventionists and 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 and, and proponents of realism and restraint, um, they might be, but only kind of narrowly. Um, and we need a wholesale rethinking of American foreign policy. So um, it's fine, and I applaud people who have rethought the wisdom of NATO expansion, and a lot of them. Half. I find it worrying that the Middle East policies and their policies towards Asia generally are basically identical to uh, those policies which are advocated by liberal hawks and neoconservatives. So uh, the Natcons, you know. Um, no, thanks.
0: I was going to say, you mentioned a few names there that I don't always uh, agree with. I'm being diplomatic here. Uh, sure. But, yeah. you know, even someone like Aaron Matei, I mean, his, let's be honest here, his father, uh, Gabor Matei, is a Jewish survivor of the Holocaust. So, you know, I may not agree with him on everything, but I'm not sure that I would go so far as to be like, well, you're just a raving anti-Semite. It's, you know, and this is where I do have problems with like the IHRA definition, and
1: whatnot. I, I, you brought up um, Aaron, Aaron's father. I mean, I would urge people to to go online and find his um, kind of ex- <clears throat> kind of extraordinary um, talk that he gave uh, a number of weeks ago in an interview with um, Aaron and and Max. Um, It's something like 10, 12 minutes long. And it's really, really... um, People should watch it. People who... You know, this, is as you say, this is someone whose family was... A lot of his family was killed in the Holocaust. He survived the Holocaust. Um, And this is a very humane, um, thoughtful person. And a lot of the let's be honest on both sides right now there's a lot of heat not a lot of light um so a voice like gabor mate's is very very necessary uh right now now i think have you seen it um do you know what i'm talking I about if
0: i have seen the video maybe i i will try to maybe link it in the uh episode synopsis um i also you know another issue that always comes up with nagorno karabakh uh or the republic of Artsakh, as as it was known before um is I've heard a lot of people say, and I I don't know what you think of this or if you even have thoughts on it, but um, a lot of people will bring up the issue of racism. So what what I'm saying is, do you think there are conservatives that look at Armenian Christians and say, well, those are like, that's from the like, they're very, they're like an exotic type of Christian almost, or, or they're foreign. They're not like us. Do you think that also plays into why a lot of conservatives have ignored the plight of Armenian Christians, or do you think people
1: overplay that? I don't know about that. I, I, I actually hadn't thought about that. I, I think if it does get ignored and I think probably the reason it does get ignored is just, is probably due more to size than anything else. Um, Money talks in Washington. And the fact of the matter is, is that the Israel lobby and the Azerbaijan lobby have a lot more money than the Armenians, even the Kardashians. So uh, you know, I, you know, I don't know. I, um, it will be interesting to to see you know how the next couple of weeks and months you know play out, and if you know what will there be a reaction if Azerbaijan, with Turkey and Israel's help, you know takes another chunk out of you know takes a chunk out of Armenia. Um, since
0: you? Since you've been in DC, uh one thing that I don't think people understand. So when you say the Azeri lobby, or when you say the Israel lobby, I think especially with the Israel lobby, people I think have this idea in their head that we're just talking about APAC. It's I don't think it's just APAC, though. I think it's also the Zionist Organization of America and other what I would call pro Israel affinity groups. Would you agree with that?
1: Sure. There's no doubt about that. It's APAC is the most visible and I think probably the most well funded. Um, but it goes beyond that. I mean, Walton Mearsheimer in their you know groundbreaking book, The Israel Lobby, uh, I think which was published in 07, or something, like, um, you know, they even spoke about, and this got this really pissed a lot of people off, but I mean, they even spoke about birthright. Right. Um, so yeah, it has a lot of it has a lot of um, elements uh, for sure, cultural, um, and uh, of course, campaign contributions and the like. Um, and I think that I think a lot of it's sincere too. I mean, I Harry Truman put us on this track where you know a lot of it isn't just about money and it isn't just about power for a lot of americans that there really is this sort of um honest and heartfelt identification uh with with israel because it's they view it as um and i think this is the way un- bobby kennedy views it um as a kind of under siege underdog democracy that deserves our help and without us you know uh, they wouldn't make it uh, that that happens to be not true but i think that you know a lot of people really sincerely um believe that so you know well, i don't want it,
0: not to not to interrupt you but i think in some ways it's natural too um so so for instance with israel i can understand why jewish americans would want positive or good relationships with israel because it's it's they view it as their ancestral homeland in the same way i think you know there are chinese americans that want good relationships between uh the us and china or italian americans like myself that want good relations between italy and you know and, and on some level I'm, i i think that's perfectly fine i think where it gets really messy is when you get into the lobbying and the sort of trying to influence us foreign policy
1: and you know obviously the Israel lobby isn't the only, you know, foreign lobby that has power, that has a lot of power in Washington, right? I mean, I re- I wrote a very long article, I think in the spring, about what uh, I call the captive, captive nations lobby uh, in Washington, which has had a lot of power over the Biden administration's response to the U- U- Ukraine crisis. Um, you know, you have the cuba lobby which is very powerful um so they're not alone and it it, you know this sort of thing is is kind is really unfortunately as american as apple pie um the problem is is do the policies that these specific lobbies are lobbying for um do they redound to the benefit of the people of the united states or do they not it would seem to me that um in large part, the policies advocated by uh, the Israel lobby and the captive nations lobby
0: do not. So I know I've kept you over time, but I wanted to briefly get into this article. Uh, Kurt Campbell, the lobbyist as diplomat. Uh, for people that don't know, who is Kurt Campbell, and uh, you know what do we mean by the lobbyist as
1: diplomat? So Campbell's a longtime Democratic foreign policy fixture. In Washington, and he's held a number of uh, pretty high-profile jobs. He's an Asia expert, um, so he's held high-level positions. I was going to say, I think in the article you mentioned that he, along with uh,
0: old Senator Jim Webb, were kind of responsible for the Obama administration's Asia pivot in some ways.
1: Yeah, yeah, he's he's credited as being the architect of the Asia pivot. Um, he's had high level positions in the Clinton administration, the Obama administration. After he left the Obama administration, he founded something called the Asia Group, um, which you know, became a very, you know, um, very influential and um, you know, um, consulting group having to do with um, the Asia Pacific. Uh, He's also a co-founder of the Center for a New, um, CNS, the Center for a New American um, Security Policy. (laughs) And um, that's, you know, basically a very hawkish uh, neocon outfit. So uh, he spent a lot of years doing the whole revolving door dance, lining his pocket um and now he's back and um he originally his first job in the biden administration was to be the nsc point man on the indo pacific um and now he has found himself uh, appointed as the to the number 2 position at the us at the us state department campbell is a pretty well known to be a swamp creature extraordinaire, a real kind of a real slick character. A a friend of mine who is in the kind of military um, Pentagon reform movement. Um, I I won't say who he is, but um, really well known. I've probably interviewed him, but. Probably have, and I'll tell you after but uh, who it is, but he told me that when you meet Campbell in person, the sleaze oozes out of him. You can sense that this, you know he's just one of the most you know oily Washington operators out there. So um, I think people were relieved that Victoria Newland didn't get the appointment to be number two at state. But I'm not really sure Campbell is much of, is really that much of an improvement um given his uh, hawkish views on china and of course his um swamp-like attributes
0: yeah you mentioned in the in the article that uh according to the uh project on government oversight which is like you know well regarded you know he has ties to this group called the asia group that they refer to as uh bearing all the hallmarks of a shadow lobbying outfit
1: <laughs> yeah yeah that's exactly right um so anyway, we have a year and more left of uh, the, the the Biden the Biden gang. Um, and I really am shocked at just how amateurish um and foolish his foreign policy uh, team has been and I can't believe that it actually rivals and in some way surpasses the stupidity, viciousness, arrogance of the Bush administration. Uh, so I you know, I don't know if there's anything better on the horizon, but this has got to end. I got to ask you a question in that regard. So I've been bringing
0: this up to almost every guest I've had on since October 7th. But 10 days before October 7th, Elliot Abrams, famed convicted Iran-Contra criminal, and uh, I would say super neocon, who is still in the CFR for some reason, despite being wrong so often, 10 days before October 7th, he was advising a congressional committee. Um, I believe it was on foreign affairs. He was saying, "Don't be concerned about uh, Hamas in Gaza. Saying, you know, that they're they're going to be restrained in Gaza. They don't want to attack Israel right now. Be concerned about Hamas in the West Bank. You know, they're they're trying to infiltrate the West Bank, and if they attack, it'll be from the West Bank. That's ten days before the attack." Yesterday I see him on a CFR podcast. I'm thinking to myself, how many times does this dude have to get things wrong? And I, other people have said to me, well, you know, Elliot Abrams sort of has a ceremonial position these days within the uh you know, foreign policy establishment. But I'm just thinking to myself, I don't care. Why is he there? He gets stuff. Why is John Bolton still around? I mean, I don't
1: I don't know if you want to comment, but this is one that gets me fired up. Yeah, I think that people who say that about, you know, he has a ceremonial position, something like that. I had someone. I mean, he, got once,
0: a, he got it completely wrong
1: October 7th, but go on. I, yeah, yeah. I had someone once say to me, this person worked at the Manhattan Institute, and um, person said to me, I was talking about the architects and the propagandists for the war in Iraq, and Judy Miller came up. And this person seriously turned to me and said, you know, she's really suffered. I thought to myself, you got to be kidding me. You know, she's she has a senior fellowship at your think tank. She's constantly on in the Wall Street Journal and Fox News. You know, she's really suffered. I, I'm i not so. I guess probably the part of it. I mean, this might explain why I am where I am, but I'm not so down with that. I'm not really so forgiving. I I wouldn't, if I ran into a Blinken or an Abrams or anyone like, I wouldn't shake their hand. I, I wouldn't even speak to them. I think that the, uh, John Bolton, you know, I mean, these or people. Even, or even uh, Blinken's
0: buddy. Um, you know, he, he was, I didn't realize until recently, he was like really close with Robert Kagan. Like, why
1: is Kagan still around? <laughs> like, Sullivan, you know, and Sullivan, of course, wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs where he was bragging about, this was right before October 7th, um, you know, how successful the Biden Middle Eastern policy was. Like, the Middle East has never been calmer. And then for, then they let him go in to the piece and revise it, and they didn't put an editor's note on it. That's the way these things work, but I mean, I honest, I really do think, and 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 I mean it, I really do think that Anthony Blinken, um, and Joe Biden, um, and Jake Sullivan should be referred to the Hague uh, for for what they've for what for what they are allowing the Israelis uh, to do. They are implicating the people of the United States. Um, in a in a horrendous uh, crime, and um, it, it is, is really dark. I mean, it's it's kind of you know it's amusing to look at these people like Abrams or, or whatever, but really it's very damaging to to our country and our country's reputation. Well, it's, it's
0: damaging to credibility, and I mean, to be honest, if we're going to have people like if we're going to have elite technocrats, I mean, there has to be a mechanism for you know sometimes when you get things wrong enough you need to put in new blood and maybe get rid of the elliot abrams types even if they're ceremonial quote-unquote positions you know i don't i just i think it's very unfair uh, on a lot of different levels yeah do you feel like um this is the last question i'm going to ask you I promise here but uh kept you long um do you feel like we're in a uh i almost feel like we're in a back to the future situation now i feel like we've (laughs) come back to the 2000s, you know, you know, I think we're in a time that reminds me a lot of the war on terror period. It's beginning to feel that way. Uh, do you think we're in that sort of a, uh, I don't know, just, I feel like we've gone through a time warp.
1: Yeah. But I think, in I think in some ways it's, 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 it's actually, it's actually worse. Um, and, you know, surveying the landscape down here, um, is really quite disheartening because um there's no really there's no chance that any kind of new thinking or new blood is going to enter government uh, anytime soon and you know I don't want to get you know too sidetracked here but I mean a couple of years ago people really thought that someone like Matt Duss um, you know, was kind of representative of the new thinking. Uh, and, you know, maybe that, you know, there was a changing uh, of the guard, or at least that there were some people, you know, up and coming who understood that the old way of doing things probably, you know, had to change. Um, look at him now, running interference for for his friend Blinken, and 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 bernie and you know uh, refu- you know hundreds of former sanders staffers issued a uh, an open letter to the senator asking him to please you know advocate for ceasefire not mr dust so you know washington has this real way of of corrupting people and um i have no doubt that you know he he aligns now. Um, his po- the the policies that he advocates for are now, basically indistinguishable from those um, advocated for by the Clinton crowd, for instance. I,
0: I I won't comment on that because I I go back and forth on Matt, um, but I you know I I do think there's an issue. Um, what do you make of uh, Josh Paul resigning? Is that a uh- a, a sliver of hope or as you were in the state department at one point i'm curious what you think of josh paul's resignation
1: i mean he deserves a lot of credit he did the right thing um no one will care or remember in three weeks and he's i would be shocked if he ever works in this town again wow i hope he does i you know i mean i thought that there was a really brave and principled thing that he did, but I can't imagine that he will.
0: Well, I, I know that's a, a grim note to end on, but uh, grim times, I suppose. I want to thank you again, James Carden for coming on Parallax News. How can my listeners keep up with your work? Uh, That's tricky. I don't do social media. So um, I was going to say, just, you know, look up your name on Google, maybe <laughs> just repeatedly check antiwar.com or conser- yeah, conservative, or- maybe unheard.
1: Uh. Yeah, that's basically, uh, sometimes Responsible Statecraft. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I should have mentioned Responsible Statecraft, definitely. But it's um, about it. Those are the places that will have me for now. <laughs> we'll see how long that lasts. But uh, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it.
0: Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with James Carden. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com. You are what makes this show possible. I only have one advertiser, Wall Street Window. Thank you, Mike Swanson. But other than that, it's all you. I need your help to keep this show going. Any donation on the Patreon will help. So, Patreon.com slash Parallax Views. One last time, Patreon.com slash Parallax Views. And with that being said. Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with J.J. To, to Parallax with Jair-Lax Michael. Jair-Lax Michael. Views to Jair-Lax, <laughs>
1: The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit it. If nothing else,
0: if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically,
1: basically, I I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why...